Onassis Foundation presents Apply Dagger, Heidegger's Thinking in Being and Time Explained, a podcast series with professor and philosopher Simon Creechley. Hello, episode six, and there's a slight change of plan here. I was going to do um, episode six, we're going to be on inauthentic life. And I was looking at the material and thinking it through and um, realized that actually there's two short episodes here. So I want to, the first episode I want to um, pick up from where we left off last time. Uh, Episode five, we went through the basic concepts of chapter five, division one of being in time. Those four basic concepts are state of mind, understanding, discourse, and falling. Uh, State of mind, which is linked to thrownness, understanding, which is linked to projection, uh, discourse, which is language or talk, and falling. And, um, I mean, the key concept last time was the idea of Dasein, us, uh, as thrown projection. And we left it with a little discussion of interpretation. I think I can now put that more crisply. Uh, and then I want to talk about Heidegger's understanding of language in being in time, because it's really important. And then episode seven, next one will be on inauthentic life, looking at the idea of um, really what's going on in part B of chapter, f- uh, of chapter five, when Heidegger talks about uh, idle talk, ambiguity, and curiosity. And um, so let's make a start. So as I said, I think I can put the points I was making last time more crisply. We have an understanding of the world. The world is that referential totality, as Heidegger calls it, that kind of whole uh, network of stuff that hangs together and which forms the meaningful context in which we find ourselves. So the world, as Heidegger would put it, is a referential totality of involvements that are significant to us. And in this world, we use things. We have a concern for things. We see things. Uh, Every relationship to things is a mode of sight. Heidegger's point is that our fundamental mode of Sight is not one of pure perceptive beholding in the mode of the present at hand. Rather, we see things in the mode of circumspection. So we take things as things. We take the table as a table, the door as a door, the hamster as a hamster, whatever it might be. That is, the things that surround us and which make up the stuff of the world are things we understand, and that understanding is articulated when we take something as something, when we uh, use the table as a table, as the table I'm leaning on now, I'm taking it as a table. This taking as is interpretation. And the German term holds a clue to the meaning of this word. Interpretation is Auslegung, the laying out of understanding. Interpretation is the act by which the understanding becomes itself. So interpretation is the taking 
of something as something. And it is also the taking a part of something and seeing it for what it is. The crucial point that Heidegger's making in uh, this part of Being in Time, paragraph 32, is that this taking of things, interpretation, is pre-predicative, it's pre-propositional. I see the hammer as a hammer, a hammer that I use. I do not see it in the mode of the present at hand. I do not see it as a theoretical object. This can be compared, I think, to the discussion of signs that we had um, a few episodes back, where signs are those things which we take as things, say an exit sign, we see as an exit sign, but we see that exit sign as something ready to hand in relationship to the context of a particular world. And the point I ended with last time is that we are here Heidegger will say, in a hermeneutic circle. The hermeneutic circle is that interpretation already understands, and what interpretation lays out is already understood and must be understood. This is different from what we might call normal scientific proof, where we, where we may not presuppose what it is our task to provide grounds for. So in normal, standard, say, scientific procedure, um, we proceed by a logic of discovery. We cannot presuppose um, that which it's our task to provide grounds for. We discover it. Without being in the world, uh, we're always stuck in a circle. And it's a question of entering this circle in the right way and not trying to get out of it. The hermeneutic circle, the fact that interpretation already understands, is a virtuous circle, not a vicious circle. Now, if we've understood that thought to some extent, then it has a devastating consequence. And here we move on to paragraph 33 of Being in Time, which is on the idea of assertions. You'll take a few minutes to get this clear in our minds. But I think it's important and we can certainly make it clear. The consequence of the argument Heidegger's developing is that truth, truth is not something we can assert uniquely of propositions. As Heidegger puts it, the proposition or the assertion or judgment is not the primary and authentic locus of truth, where truth is understood as the truth of that which is, namely our being in the world. The truth of being in the world is laid out in interpretation, which is prior to assertion, prior to a proposition, in the same way as the register hand is prior to the present at hand. Now, Heidegger, being such a good scholar of the history of philosophy, recognizes the radicality of what he's doing here. And being Heidegger, this book, Being in Time, was uh, ostensibly an introduction to Aristotle. It's hard to detect that um, as one leafs through its pages, but there we are. But in these pages of uh, Being in Time, we can see the direct influence of 
one of Aristotle's rather tedious logical works, which is called Peri Hermeneia, or De Interpretatione, or On Interpretation. And in this little text, just a few pages, um, Aristotle's concerned with the definitions of word, sentence, and proposition. It's dry stuff in Aristotle, but it's worth a look if you get interested. But this is why um, Heidegger at this point in Being in Time has moved into a discussion of assertions. It's more or less cribbed from Aristotle. The question, uh, the key issue which is being raised here and which we're gonna see deepened in the next paragraph of Being in Time on discourse, on uh, language, the issue here is the following. For ancient ontology, by which Heidegger in this period means Plato and Aristotle, as he understands them at this time, for ancient ontology, logos, language, is the means for obtaining access to that which is and to defining the being of that which is. So far, so good. The assumption of Aristotle's logic, which is still definitive for subsequent philosophy and certainly for someone like Heidegger, Aristotle's assumption is that propositions are the highest form of logos, the highest form of language. That propositions of the form of this is an X or X is true or this is a hammer are the logical form by which we gain access to that which is. Now, to feel the radicality of this move that Heidegger's making, a move to something prior to propositions, uh, it might be helpful to think about another philosophical example. And that example I want to mention here is um, Wittgenstein. In Wittgenstein's Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus, which is um, an apparently complicated book, but actually is just seven propositions, all the uh, Wittgenstein presents in that book, if you ignore the kind of um, sub-propositions, are seven thoughts. The first proposition is the following, the world is all that is the case. Seems fair enough, right? The world is all that is the case. Uh, proposition two, what is the case is facts or the existence of states of affairs. Fair enough, right? The world is all that is the case, and what is the case are facts. The third proposition in the Tractatus is a logical picture of facts is a thought. A logical picture of facts is a thought. And the four, and this is the key one for our purposes, a thought is a proposition with a sense, right? So the world, which is all that is the case, um, can be captured in propositions. And a proposition is a thought with a sense. Propositions five and six of the Tractatus uh, establish roughly and readily the truth function of what he calls elementary propositions, the general form of propositions, which are reducible either to um, being empirically verifiable um, we can, certain propositions will be true by virtue of being empirically true. There is a, a glass of water on the table is a proposition I can test 
by virtue of there being or not being a glass of water on the table. And secondly, uh, propositions can be true by virtue of their logical form, either reducible to a tautology, A is A, or a contradiction, A is not A. And then proposition seven of the Tractatus, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. So the point of Wittgenstein's argument in the Tractatus is that propositions give us a picture of the facts and access to the totality of the world. And the logical form of the proposition exhausts all that can be meaningfully thought. The rest is nonsense. But this is very important nonsense for Wittgenstein. This nonsense is the nonsense of the realms of what he calls the ethical, the aesthetic, and the religious. There's a letter that Wittgenstein wrote to a friend shortly after he finished the Tractatus where he says that the, the key um, as it were, discoveries of the Tractatus are what, are not, what is not said in the book. The book exhausts all that can be said meaningfully. And all that can be said meaningfully is either reducible to logical form or empirically verifiable. But for Wittgenstein, what's important is elsewhere. And that's something about which we have to be silent. Now, Wittgenstein shifts his position in his later thinking away from what he called the crystalline purity of logic. And he moved towards a position on language that indeed uh, some people have thought is quite close to Heidegger when uh, Wittgenstein talks about language games and the rest. But just staying with the, um, the early Wittgenstein, the point I'm trying to make here is that for uh, the early Wittgenstein, access to that which is, is through propositions, right? through propositional form. And Heidegger is trying to uncover an area of uh, language which is prior to propositions. And this is a really radical thought in relationship to the history of philosophy from the ancient Greeks through to a contemporary of Heidegger's like Wittgenstein. So let's turn more closely to uh, Heidegger's text here, see what he's doing. And again, we're on around, around page 200 uh, in paragraph 33, and um, he says the following. I'll just find a couple of snippets from this page. He says, in concern for circumspection, namely the kind of looking at things that we have in our relationship to the world, uh, he says, in concern for circumspection, there are no such assertions at first. Right? At first, there are no assertions. He goes on, but such circumspection has, of course, its specific ways of interpreting, and these, as compared with the theoretical judgment just mentioned, may take on such form as the hammer is too heavy, or rather just too heavy. Hand me the other hammer. Interpretation, Heidegger says, is carried out primordially, not in a theoretical statement, but in an action of circumspective concern. That's the key thing in that phrase. The interpretation does not, uh, is not carried out in a theoretical statement, a proposition, 
but in an action, an action of being circumspectively concerned with something. Going back to Heidegger's text, he says, laying aside the unsuitable tool or exchanging it without wasting words. He says, without wasting words. And we get the idea that we've seen a number of times in, in Heidegger, that the world um, that we are in is a kind of workshop world, a world where hammers are passed from one person to another. And they might be accompanied by the word, the word hammer or pass me the other hammer. It's a bit like when a, you know, a surgeon says, uh, scalpel, you know, give me a scalpel or bigger scalpel or something like that. These aren't propositions, these are words which are actions. And that's what Heidegger's really getting at in these pages. He has a distinction on this basis, this argument. He makes a distinction between two ways of taking things as. He says there, are, um, there is an existential and hermeneutic as, right, which is what he wants to argue for, and what he calls an apophantical as, an apophantical as, which is what takes place in an assertion or a proposition. He says on page um, 201, thus assertion cannot disown its ontological origin from an interpretation which understands. The primordial as of an interpretation which understands circumspectively, we call the existential hermeneutical as in distinction from the apophantical as of the assertion. Maybe a slightly bewildering quotation, but the thought here is very simple. It is that we take things as things in terms of our understanding of our being in the world, existentially, hermeneutically. That's what is our founding relationship to, to things. And then propositions, theoretical statements, assertions are founded upon those. And um, this is where, um, and the paragraph where the paragraph finishes, paragraph 33, he makes an interesting uh, remark, which is that Aristotle is, you know, great, wonderful, but he has to conclude that the basis for the understanding of language, of logos, in Aristotle and ancient ontology is not primordial enough because it understands language as something present at hand, something theoretical, something which is articulated in the form of a proposition. And Heidegger thinks that our actual understanding, our actual use of uh, discourse, of language, is deeper than that. And this is what he's going to try and lay out in the next paragraph, paragraph 34, which is called Dasein und Rede, being there and discourse, full stop, period, die Sprache. Dasein and discourse, full stop, language. You'll notice here, that's why I emphasized it with the German terms, He's making a distinction between discourse, Rede, and language, Sprache, speech. And uh, one question we have to ask ourselves in this paragraph is really what that distinction consists in. 
So, paragraph 34, very, very important paragraph in Being in Time. The existential ontological fundament of language is discourse. Heidegger admits that the previous analyses have been making constant use of discourse, but he's kept it suppressed, he says, in the thematic analysis. Discourse is constitutive for the disclosure of the there of being in the world. Discourse is the way in which the there of our essential disclosedness becomes intelligible or meaningful. So you can feel its importance that we are being there. The way in which our there is disclosed, is articulated, is through discourse. Now, discourse, rede, renders the Greek term logos. And logos for Heidegger, if we go back to the introduction to being in time, paragraph seven, logos is what lets us see. So discourse is the letting be seen, the intelligibility of that which shows itself. What shows itself is a phenomenon and uh, how we're allowed to see a phenomenon is through discourse. So discourse is the ology in phenomenology, we might say. This is where we put the ology in phenomenology. And um, this raises an interesting question. I mentioned this last time, I think. I'm here directly on page 203, 204 of Being in Time. Discourse is the articulation of intelligibility, of meaning as such. As such, it underlies both interpretation and assertion. In order for interpretation to interpret, to lay things out, there has to be discourse. Being in the world is discursively articulated. It's always discursively articulated. The intelligibility of the world becomes words. Now, the way in which discourse gets expressed is in language. Language, for Heidegger, is the totality of words. And here we have that suggestion of a distinction between discourse and language, which is quite tricky to work out. If language is words, what I'm speaking right now, then what is discourse, we might ask? What is rede? Is this kind of the capacity for language that precedes words, a kind of grammar, a kind of basic grammar, transcendental grammar. It's not clear. Interesting issue. It has some interesting consequences, one of which I'll get to in a couple of minutes. But however we understand these, um, these terms, discourse and language, Heidegger's thought here is that discourse is existential language. Discourse is, die Rede ist existential Sprache. Discourse is existential language. It's language prior to the apprehension of presence at hand, word things. 
Discourse is the structuring or ordering of the intelligibility of being in the world to which our being with others belongs and our concern for being with one another. In other terms, discourse in language that Heidegger won't use because he thinks it's too, um, too obvious, discourse is intersubjectivity. It's intersubjective. Discourse is the articulation of our being with others. Now, moving on a, a tiny bit, there's a connection between discourse, uh, between being with others, and with communication. And Heidegger makes, uh, makes play of the relationship between mitsein, being with others, and mitteilung, communication where communication is grasped as understanding and being with one another, sharing a state of mind with others, sharing a state of mind in a commonly shared world. And this also raises a very interesting consequence, which I want to um, emphasize here, which is that language, discourse, is not inside the head. Language is not inside the head. It's not what's running through your minds. It's not uh, dependent, you know, or explained by its relationship to the brain or anything like that. That's not the way Heidegger wants to present this argument. He says, this is on page 205. He says, in talking, Dasein expresses itself, not because it has in the first instance been encapsulated as something internal over against something outside, but because as being in the world, it's already outside when it understands. Language is not inside the head. Language is ecstatic. Language is always already outside with others in the shared expression of discourse. Insofar as one understands, and we always have understanding of the world for Heidegger, insofar as one understands, one is already outside, and so is the other. And he says in a, what's like a, like a side note here, so this is also the, um, the way we could think about speaking in relationship to poetical discourse, he says. Poetical discourse is a way of laying out our understanding of the other, our understanding of the world, our understanding of being with others. So poetry is the disclosure of the world and the co-disclosure of the world as a world that we share with others, and it's a disclosure of the world with others which is pre-propositional. And this is why I emphasize those links to um, poets like Wallace Stevens and Fernando Pessoa, because they really give us a sense of this world-structuring activity of language. Now, after Heidegger's made this point, which is kind of his, uh, his main point in this paragraph, about discourse, we get a beautiful little phenomenology of hearing, of hearkening, of silence and reticence. 
Hearing is essential. Darzain has to have ears and, if you like, clean ears that listen to the other. And the problem with, um, with us, because we are not oppressed by, we, are, we constantly fall into tradition, into customary ways of thinking and speaking, is that our, our ears are blocked. And we have to unblock those ears and clean them out. So in many ways, being in time is a kind of way of getting that wax out of our ears and cleaning those channels so we hear more crisply and cleanly. But listening too is the existential way of being open uh, as being with others. He says on page um, 206, he says, listening to is Dasein's existential way of being open as being with for others. Indeed, hearing constitutes the primary and authentic way in which Dasein is open for its own most potentiality for being. As in hearing the voice of the friend whom every Dasein carries with it. Very strange phrase that, as in hearing the voice of the friend whom every Dasein carries with it. Dasein hears because it understands. So we might ask, who is this friend? Um, I'll come back to that later in, the, in these episodes. It might well turn out that Dasein is its own best friend, which may be a slightly sad state of affairs. But the point that Heidi is making here is that in listening to, uh, in hearing, we are open and we're open and we're with others. And that's really the point that he wants to make. We have to clean our ears. The um, second aspect of this little phenomenology um, in relation to discourse is what he calls, is in relation to what he calls hearkening. Hearkening. And he says that hearkening is more primordial than what is called hearing in psychology. And there's an absolutely fascinating paragraph where he talks about this. He says, this is on page 207, it is on the basis of this potentiality for hearing, which is existentially primary, that anything like hearkening becomes possible. Hearkening is phenomenally still more primordial than what is defined in the perception of sounds. What we first hear is never noises or complexes of sounds, but the creaking wagon, the motorcycle. Okay, listen to these examples. We don't hear a noise, we don't hear a sound complex, we hear a creaking wagon, we hear a motorcycle. Going back to the text, we hear the column on the march, the north wind, the woodpecker tapping, the fire crackling. These are strange examples. Where is the column on the march, on the march to? Where's it come from? Why a woodpecker? The fire is crackling, what's being burned? These are slightly suspicious metaphors given Heidegger's later political commitments, but let's just uh, pass over that for the second. The point that he's making 
is that when we think about these examples, the column on the march, the fire crackling, the woodpecker tapping, uh, Dasein hearkens to these insofar as it dwells alongside what it understands. It dwells alongside things in the world. So hearkening is similar to uh, spatiality, that discussion of space, where space is what uh, brings things close. In space, Dasein has a tendency towards the near, Heidegger says. Um, Dasein brings things close. De-distancing is the rather ugly term he uses. But in hearing another, in hearkening to another, we are already with him or her. Then he talks about silence. And this is kind of revealing. Um, he says, this is on page 208, speaking at length about something does not offer the slightest guarantee that thereby understanding is advanced. On the contrary, talking extensively about something covers it up and brings what is understood to a sham clarity, the unintelligibility of the trivial. The unintelligibility of the trivial. He goes on, I won't, I won't, read, won't read the whole page. It's fascinating, but for Heidegger, um, authentic discourse is keeping silence, using words uh, in a limited way. He says, to be able to keep silent, Dasein must have something to say. Uh, it must have at its disposal an authentic and rich disclosedness of itself. In that case, one's reticence makes something manifest and does away with idle talk. We'll come back to idle talk in a, in a second, or we'll introduce idle talk in, a, in the next episode. But notice the reference to reticence. Hearing, hearkening, silence, reticence. Heidegger prefers few words rather than many words and for those few words to come out of a deep understanding. If we wish to become authentic, for Heidegger, we need to cultivate reticence. Now, my personal fantasy, one of my personal fantasies, has been a wish to start a, a reticence bar. Imagine a reticence bar where no one speaks except when they have something to say, where people keep silent, and then when they have something to say because they genuinely understand it, they'll say a few words. Otherwise, they'll keep quiet. I think this would be fantastic. I remember I spent many, many happy evenings in, in Finland over the years, uh, particularly in Helsinki. I remember being with um, some friends of mine in Helsinki after a long night drinking beer and such like. And these were people, people I was with were people that had known each other their whole lives. And at a certain point in the evening, one, two in the evening, things became quieter and quieter. Uh, to the point where at a certain point in the evening, these friends who were really, really good friends, really close friends, fell into absolute silence. Nothing was said one to the other. And you thought, well, this is good. This wouldn't happen in New York. Everybody chattering away. Anyway, so I want to open a reticence bar. Um, 
Now, at the bottom of page 208, towards the end of this uh, paragraph 34, Heidegger cites Aristotle again. And it's um, a very famous quotation. All the words in, in Greek are zuon logon ekon. Zuon logon ekon. And those words are usually translated into Latin as animal rationale, rational animal. Now, what Heidegger is suggesting here in relation to language is the following. The tradition thinks about the human being as an animal with the use of reason. Logos is reason. Heidegger is going to suggest that we understand um, logos, discourse, as um, this way in which the human being shows itself in an everyday, average manner. So Heidegger translates these words of Aristotle, zuon, logon, ekon, with the, uh, the German phrase, der Mensch, the human being, zeigt sich, shows itself als seienders, as a being, das redet, that speaks or discourses. The human being is phenomenological. The human being shows itself, discloses itself as the talker. Talk, discourse, language is the manner in which we are allowed to let see the constitution of our being in the world. The kind of um, wrinkle in that fabric or complication in that fabric um, that I want to introduce in finishing this episode is the following. One way of thinking about what Heidegger is saying here is that we are linguistic animals. We have, we have language. It's language that picks us out. And language is what allows us to see that which shows itself, namely um, our being in the world. And furthermore, this language is pre-propositional. Yet here I want to go back one more time to this odd distinction between discourse and language. We can have language as word things, word units, but discourse is something deeper than that. Discourse is the way in which the world is articulated as such. It's the deep grammar of experience, the deep grammar of existence. The final thought I want to introduce in relationship to all of this is that if language for Heidegger does not mean the human capacity for vocal utterance alone, if language rather means the ability to discover a world and for a world to have significance, intelligibility for a being that discovers it, then by virtue of what can we reduce that idea of discourse to human discourse? Might it not be true that non-human creatures, 
I'm thinking here of um, higher primates. I'm thinking here of uh, dolphins and whales. By virtue of Heidegger's argument that discourse is the kind of grammar which allows for an understanding of world, could we say that's not true of chimpanzees? Is that not true of dolphins? I don't see how we could get to that conclusion. It seems to me fairly obvious that in the higher primates and uh, more developed creatures, they certainly have a social existence. They have uh, a world which is intelligible to them, which makes sense. And furthermore, that there are forms of communication amongst those animals. What I'm saying here is the usual way of reading Heidegger is as uh, a humanist. He's arguing for the um, that Dasein is us, the human being, and we human beings have this distinctive relationship to the world. But you could push it a little bit further and say, actually, any species, uh, any group of, of creatures which has a world which hangs together in a certain way has discourse and is Dasein too. There's a moment in um, a 1929 lecture course called The Fundamental Concepts of Metaphysics, where Heidegger makes a threefold distinction between um, human beings, Dasein, uh, and we have world, animals which are poor in world, and rocks and stones which have no world at all. But I think it's more complicated than that. I think that animals have worlds in all sorts of intriguing and compelling ways. And um, a final, final thought here is that um, some of you might remember 2017, 2018 maybe, as the, the years of the octopus boom or the cephalopod boom. And I read all sorts of books about octopuses, cuttlefish, nautiluses, and other members, the four members of that cephalopod group. Fascinating creatures. And if we consider the octopus or the squid and think about um, the world structure of the squid, then uh, just on the basis of empirical research, I would, I would venture to say it becomes very hard to say that an octopus is poor in world. I think we'd have to say that an octopus um, has a world um, the world for an octopus, and that world makes sense. Furthermore, if you think about octopuses, they live for two or three years, they've got huge brains, their sensory apparatus is not restricted to, you know, eyes stuck in the, their heads and uh, nasal cavities and ears, but their sensory apparatus is totally dispersed with their body and their body is not restricted by an interior skeleton like human beings, but they are creatures that can move through the tiniest holes and gaps. And they, um, they have worlds, I think, and it's crazy to deny them the existence of a world. And what's interesting about octopuses, I'm kind of going off on one here, is that uh, octopuses are not particularly social creatures. We like the idea of animals uh, having a world, maybe if we think about animals in terms of their social organization, we could think about the, the troop of chimpanzees and we could watch documentaries on 
the hierarchical relationship that those chimpanzees have amongst themselves, the alpha male, competition from other males, the dramas that play out. Um, and chimpanzees are pretty smart. But octopuses are probably a lot, lot smarter. Uh, they have worlds too, I think, but they have those worlds largely alone. They're not particularly social creatures. Um, and maybe that would be a whole different podcast series on a Darzine octopus and so on and so forth. And with that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna end things and move on to episode seven. Thank you very much for listening.